Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, guys. Hey, Jonathan. How are you? I'm good. How you doing? It's Tim Subtle here. I am well. I uh, I was having a little issue getting on the line here because I was I didn't read the three twos. I read two twos, so I kept punching it in and hanging up and calling back like an idiot. So uh, <laughs> sorry that I'm a minute late here. Oh no, you're fine. How are you? I'm doing well. It's uh, a gorgeous day in New York City. Hot, a little bit hot and muggy, which you probably know something about. Yeah, and, for uh, sure. But it's but it's beautiful. Things are things are going well. We're a few days out from book launch, which is always insane. And yeah. uh, that's kind of my life right now. For the next couple yeah. of weeks, it will just be. Busy, busy, but how are things with you? Doing good, man. It's um kind of the reverse for me as a pastor. This is sort of the lull, you know, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. where everybody's family goes to Disneyland except yours. So mm-hmm. you're kind of stuck here. Right. <laughs> stuck here it's doing my a, thing. Do you guys die die down kind of uh shortly after Easter and then kind of stay low until back to school? 
how you know it it's not it's not quite as pronounced as that in in my congregation but i this is i'm in a small church and so yeah. the fluctuations are are not they're not that bad they're, this time of year there's about two or three weeks end of july early august that are that are a little rough mm -hmm. but, mm. yeah well i appreciate i appreciate you making uh time for me regardless yeah man I, i'm excited i am i am um i don't know three quarters of the way through the book and having a lot of fun with it i really like it um okay. i've been working myself on um uh another book for zonervan and i'm trying to write about meaning and so a lot of it has has delved into linguistics so you are like totally scratching all my itches here in terms of language and how we use language how we make meaning so it, it's been a fun read oh i love that that's awesome Okay, so if you're cool, I'm going to jump in. What I'm doing is I'm recording this that will go to a podcast, and then I'm going to write it up for um, – I'll probably post it on um, – at Pathios and on Medium. Okay, yeah, great. So that's just a little bit about what, what we're doing. And I wonder if we could start – are you – first of all, are you hearing me okay? Yes, are you hearing me all right? Yeah, yep, you're coming through fine okay so I, I wonder if you could just start by talking a little bit about your background like where you grew up what your family was like maybe your faith background because you kind of have an an interesting spiritual and religious religious upbringing mm -hmm. yeah i was raised uh in the deep south uh in a minister's home i was raised Southern Baptist, and so came from a a conservative Southern white evangelical kind of setting where uh, to be Christian was to be Republican, where uh, men and women had uh, separate roles. Women were supposed to be at home, and men go out and and support the family and uh, a pietistic culture so you know drinking smoking cussing rated r movies were all uh, off limits and that's kind of the christianity that i knew growing up my my dad was a prominent minister of a large church he, he became president of the southern baptist convention which is uh, the nation's largest protestant uh, denomination and uh, was a, a preacher on TBN, a televangelist, if you will. So uh, also grew up in a home with uh, a lot of exposure uh, in the community and kind of felt like uh, I grew up in a little bit of a Christian fishbowl. And so that's the way I was raised. People often joke or they'll, they'll say, uh, you know, what was it like growing up in that household? And it's always a weird question. I always say, I, I don't really know. I don't know anything else. Uh, but that's the way I was raised. And and uh, probably like with uh, any upbringing, there are positives and there are negatives. Yeah. What was it like in your in your home? Like, did you guys pray together? Did you, um, do you I don't even know, do you have siblings? Like, what what was your spirituality like? Just just, you know, in the day-to-day, -day, not the yeah. public thing. Spirituality in our home was um, was kind of a, uh, there, was, there was sort of a checklist uh, every day. So, yes, you know, you would, you would pray, kneel down next to the bed at night with dad, and you'd pray. You'd get up in the morning, and you'd have morning devotions, uh, around the breakfast table every day we we were we were expected to do quiet time we would read a chapter from uh proverbs every day for a while uh we we got on a read through the bible plan for a while uh and then there was all the things you didn't do that was part of your day but i'd say a lot of it was was um and and maybe this is both a positive and a negative it was kind of rote uh, you know, we would, as, as low church evangelicals, we we would say we didn't believe in rituals, and yet 
we kind of did. We, we created our own rituals. They were just uh, rooted in late 20th century American evangelicalism. So the quiet time, for example, that is a, that's a ritual. So you may, not, you may not take communion every Sunday, but you're engaging in a ritual. And so I had kind of a, a certain expression of, Christ, of Christianity that was, it, it was sort of like the ticking of a clock. There was always something to be done, and you just trusted that uh, by, by getting into that rhythm that you were being a good Christian and that God was kind of growing you up, if you will, into the faith. That's interesting. Yeah, I resonate with that. I grew up Southern Baptist, too. Although we were not as aggressive in the home, we did, I don't know if you remember, uh, what was it called? It was like Home Life magazine, something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, sure. I When I first started writing, I wrote for Home Life magazine way back in the really? day. Really? That's funny. Okay, so so then where'd you do your, your undergrad? Yeah, I... Uh, I went to Liberty University, which some people will know, uh, is a school founded by the late uh, Reverend Jerry Falwell, who also founded the Moral Majority, sort of the father of the uh, religious right. And uh, when I was there, he was still alive. And I went there, I guess, for a number of reasons. Uh, one, my parents heavily uh, encouraged it. Two, I got a great scholarship. And three, my dad was on the board of trustees there. So um, dad was president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and I went there. People may find this interesting because I'm a writer today. Maybe this will be encouraging, actually, to some people who, who think they're not qualified to do the thing they want to do. I didn't major in English. I didn't write. In fact, I clepped out of all my English courses. I was a, a biology and chemistry major. So... Uh, I did science. I wanted, I thought I probably would go to medical school. And of course, being a science major at Liberty meant you, you, you had to do creation studies as well. So even though we learned about uh, Darwinianism and evolution, it was sort of caricatured as like, hey, here's, yes, you're learning about science. And yes, a lot of the things that you're learning are built on these assumptions. But here's, here's why all those things are are not true. And here's some alternative explanations for that. So it, it was kind of odd because, you know, I went to Liberty and it was, it was in many ways training to be a misfit. Now, in that sense, I was a cultural misfit, but I think later in life I've become kind of a Christian misfit. But I would say if you, if you traced back where that came from, a lot of that came from being a, an undergraduate student at Liberty University. That's fascinating. I, I majored in biology, too, only at a state school at, at Kansas State. So it was kind of the polar opposite. I mean, Christianity did not factor in. So a lot of my a lot of my stuff was trying to somehow, you know, harmonize or hold on to that. Or, or I began translating and, and adapting really early on. So for you, then, was it straight away from Liberty to Southeastern? No. I, I graduated at Liberty and uh, from Liberty and moved home and got a job uh, work, working for a, a Fortune 500 chemical company and one of their subsidiary offices being a chemical consultant helping launch a, a, a home care cleaning line. Uh, and uh, so if that doesn't sound like, um, <laughs> that is, I don't know what does. So I was living the dream, if you will. <laughs> and I uh, was working there, sitting at my desk uh, in a little cubicle overlooking 85. And I mean, it was like the snap of a finger. Something inside of me said, you're going to write. And it was jarring to me. Um, but I, I believed it. And I was like, what, what does this mean for me? I mean, I've never even, I didn't even know that being a writer was like a full-time job. Like, what does this mean? And that was sort of that moment where I was like, everything is changing now. It's got to change. Uh, I canceled all of my interviews with medical schools. I told my parents they were totally shocked. I quit my job. Uh, and uh, that was that. I, I left science 
and didn't look back and uh, decided at that point I needed to learn everything I could about writing because I knew nothing about it. And so I spent the next few years buried in books on writing while I, I would do that sort of moonlighting as a, a self-taught writing student while I uh, worked in the daytime at a cell phone store to pay the bills. And um, in the midst of that, I said, <clears throat> you know, if I felt called to be a religion writer and thought maybe that would even include ministry. And, you know, coming from the home of a, my dad has a Ph.D. from Southern uh, Baptist Theological Seminary, I thought that means you go to seminary. And so I decided to move uh, to Wake Forest, North Carolina, where I, I uh, took a full load worked a full-time job at a cell phone store, and then finally published my first piece. Three, almost uh, almost three years, and it was in October of 2004 that I heard that, that, that inner voice uh, say, you're going to write. And it was in the spring of 20, uh, 2007. So almost three years in May, actually, that I published my first article while I was a first semester student at Southeastern. And then that just kind of put me on that trajectory where I would work full time, I would uh, go to school full time, and then I would moonlight in the evenings. I, I would be a writer and I would I would publish articles here and there and like random little publications. I remember I wrote for Disciples World Magazine, which is was the Disciples of Christ, the Denominations Magazine. I wrote for Home Life, which is the Southern Baptist Convention's like home magazine through Lifeway. So I was just trying to do anything and everything I could to kind of break into that while I was at Southeastern and did that through that degree graduated from there, went to Emory, did another degree and into ministry. And that's, that's how my career kind of built over time. What, what were your degrees? What, what did you study at those two places? Uh, at Southeastern, I studied, uh, it was just a basic MDiv in Christian ministry. Uh, uh -huh. I started thinking I would do an MA and then was like, uh -huh. yeah, maybe I actually I would do an MDiv. Uh, did the MDiv, and then went to Southeastern to do a THM, which kind of is a research master's that straddles the MDiv and the PhD. Well, of course, you, well, you know. And, um, and there, uh, you know, I specialized in Christology. And what, I, what my, my project was, my thesis, was basically tracing the connections between Christology and ethics. So if you believe X about Jesus, then it would naturally follow you would believe why about a particular issue. And I was, I was uh, especially interested in connecting Christology to earth ethics, creation care, and, you know, environmental concerns. And to see, like, how would our views about Jesus impact that? Because I grew up in a, in a, in a house that never really thought about environmentalism. And part of that's just because I grew up, I'm a child of the 90s. And so it was not as, as, as front and center in the South uh, as it is today, where, where, where we know a lot more about a lot more. So uh, I wanted to figure out what, how my theology would or should inform that. And that's what I focused on at, at, uh, at Emory. And then out of that grew, was that your first book, Green Light God? Mm -hmm. Yep. So as I was finishing up right before I graduated, uh, I graduated in May and April, <clears throat> Green Light God, April of 2010, uh, Green Light God released. And, uh, and that, you know, that was like a lot of my thesis work. That was a lot of the work that I had I'd done. I had formed a national kind of coalition of people who were concerned about caring for creation uh, and uh, had become kind of an, an activist voice for conservative evangelicals who were interested in environmental issues, caring about uh, the least of these. Um, and so that's, that's what I did. Uh, I started that at Southeastern, and that continued for, for several years. So then, wh where do you worship now? Do you still identify as a 
evangelical? Like where are, I know in the in your chapter on creed, you mentioned the a, a Lutheran church. Where where do you go to church in Brooklyn? Yeah, it's not it, it's not a Lutheran church. It, we're, we're technically we're non-denominational. It's called Trinity Grace, uh, and we're in Tribeca. So I live in Brooklyn. I I commute in just because. Well, it's not church home, you know. So uh, yeah, in yeah. in New York, in New York, in New York, you you kind of stick to your neighborhood. You don't. Nobody tracks across to Tribeca from Williamsburg, but for, especially on a Sunday. But uh, I love my church, and so I go to Trinity Grace. It's it's kind of um, a liturgical. I would call it evangelical. I, I don't know. I don't know that I've ever heard that word used by our staff, but I would call it kind of a maybe a progressive evangelical church, uh, a progressive and liturgical uh, evangelical church. So we take communion every Sunday. We, we do a lot of like, you know, the prayers of the people and we, we teach the lectionary and we recite the creed and, and those sorts of things. So um, that, that's a, that's a church that I feel really rooted in, but we're also evangelical in the sense that, you're going to get all that, all of that stuff, but you're also going to get like a real serious sermon. You know, it's not going to be like you get a 12-minute Episcopal homily. You're going to get like mm-hmm. 30 minutes of like teaching from the text. So it kind of has the best of both mainline Protestantism uh, or even just liturgical Christianity and evangelical Christianity. So it's, it's kind of a great fit for me. Yeah, that's amazing. It sounds a lot like our congregation. Actually, it's it's interesting too that um, that you're drawn to that. I think as a as a writer, just given the rich language of the liturgy, it seems like there that that's a real thing among evangelicals. This sense of wanting, especially younger evangelicals, I guess. Although I'm almost fifty, and it's for sure there in me. But just this need to be rooted in a tradition, in a in an ancient history, and even in in the the language of of the faith as much as anything. Well, and also, it it is based on, and I've thought about writing an article about this because language, uh, shifting perspectives on language. Uh, are bringing back liturgy, and most of us aren't even aware. Let me explain what I mean. Um, Growing up, the way that I understood language, and the way that evangelicals in particular understand language in America, is primarily in its um, expressive function. So language expresses something, right? It's expressive in that we want to say something, we want to conceptualize something, so we use language as a vehicle to express what we believe, what we feel, what we think, uh, what we hope other people uh, will accept, et cetera, et cetera. That's how we use language almost exclusively as expressive. So when you sit down to pray, for example, the liturgy doesn't make sense because because if, if all I want to do is express what I feel, I don't need to borrow other people's words. So I can just, I just want to sit down and think about what it is I want to say, and I come up with my own words. So language is primarily expressive in kind of that low church American evangelical context. Liturgy signals a shift where people are beginning to realize that language is not only expressive, it is also formative. So the language that we speak actually comes back to us and shapes us in some way. And so if we think about language as formative, what we can do is is we can look at language that has formed Christians in a particular way throughout history, and we know that we can borrow, reappropriate that language, and it doesn't matter necessarily if it fully expresses what we think in the moment, we can trust that that language is forming us in some way. So a lot of people, they think, you know, I like liturgy, and that's sort of as far as they go, or I benefit from liturgy, which is about as far as your mind will go in a consumeristic and capitalistic culture. You go, well, if I like it, then I'm going to go to this church. 
what actually is happening beneath the surface is that people are waking up to a new way of understanding what language does, and that's where they're deriving this value from liturgy in the 21st century. That's great. So before we get to content, uh, I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about your process as a writer, specifically for this book. And I ask in part because this book is, am I right? This is your fourth? Yes, it's my fourth book. Yep. Well, it's a little bit different from the others in that usually you're sort of working with language to talk about some issue regarding faith, but here you're working with language to talk about the language of Uh faith. Did that, did that change the way you had to go about writing or is it more like you're a, a journalist, a writer, you do your thing, the method is there. What, what's your process like for kind well, of choosing a book yeah, this and, and was, this one? This was a totally different process. And it was uh, somewhat organic. You know, I had written three books by the time I was 30. And I just thought, you know, uh, 30-year-old doesn't have 150,000 words of wisdom to share with the world. And yet I've already shared that with the world. My clip is empty. I'm out. My gas tank has nothing left. So I thought, I am not, you know, the industry will say, write a book every two years. That's how you kind of become somebody. And there was a lot of pressure for that, honestly, that I felt from the, the Christian industrial complex, if you will. Uh, but I decided I wasn't going to be chewed up and spit out by that system. So I made up my mind I wasn't going to write another book until I had something that was so important to say and felt like I was the person to say it. You know, I, I coach writers. I have this organization called Write Brilliant, and hundreds of writers have come through this. And I always say, if you're going to write a book, you need, I always look for the two yeses. Uh, Should this book be written? And are you the person to write it? And I decided until I had those two yeses, I wasn't going to write another book. Um, But I, in the midst of this, uh, I moved to New York City. And I encountered this unexpected language barrier. And I could no longer speak God. And then I started talking to people and I realized they were struggling just like I was struggling. And then I started to look at the data and found out this was like reaching cultural crisis levels. And then I started to study it and realize something can be done about it. And as all of this coalesced, I said, it's really, it's time to pick up the pen again. It's time to do this. Now it's been almost five years from my last book to this book. Um, But I do believe that this is important enough that it had to be written. When it comes to the process, in some ways the process arose uh, organically. And I I teach writers to do that as well. Most people when they write a book are what I call concept-driven. By that I mean they come up with a really good fancy idea And then they usually will sketch uh, an outline and then they go back and they go find the content that they need to fill the book based on the outline. And that can create uh, a little bit of a problem because then you have like a, if you've ever read a book that's uneven, you'll see like a really great chapter five and then a really lean chapter six. And the reason is, is because they didn't have the content to fill up that chapter. They just arbitrarily you know, created this outline and it became like a prison that they had to live in. Well, I take the opposite approach. I'm content driven. So I start by putting all the content out and then figuring out the concept that would naturally arise from that content. So when I was putting this together, it did not, I did not think that it would be the book that it is. I actually thought I would have an introductory chapter about how I felt like I needed to speak God from scratch. And then I would have like, you know, the 20 essays that you see in the book. Uh, I would have like, I would have some of those words that I'd rediscovered. Well, uh, when I started to kind of pick at the scab, all this other stuff was coming out to use kind of a 
uh, a gross graphic metaphor, but <laughs> all this stuff was coming out. I started to I started to find the data, the problems, the linguistics, the unhelpful approaches, the helpful approaches, comeback languages, all this emerged. And so the whole first section of the book was something I didn't even anticipate. Uh, I just thought it would be almost uh, more devotional-esque in the second half of the book, like a bunch of reflections. I thought I'd write the book in, you know, maybe a a year or, or so, and it would be done. And uh, by by committing myself to allow the content to drive the concept, it became a longer project, a longer book, uh, a more in-depth study, and I think it, it contributes in some ways to a larger conversation than it would have if it was just some prescriptive memoir that I had put together, which is what I assumed I would have written to begin with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in in my reading, it seems like you're sort of tapping into this sense that the pathways to making meaning in our society are are in flux and kind of the hegemony of, of the Christian narrative in terms of its ability to set or determine set meanings, both for itself and for sight. It's, it's kind of over. And Christianity has somewhat been culturally dethroned, at least in the West, and some might even say debased. And so what you were finding is many people have have stopped taking the language of faith seriously and yet you're taking it really really seriously in fact you you um commissioned a study right with the barno organization so my first question Mm -hmm. is how how does one go about commissioning a study for the barno organization how did that whole process work and then and then what did you what did you learn yeah well that you said a lot there and a lot of it is uh is true um there are a lot of reasons why people have stopped speaking god it's not just one reason yes it is that um people have sort of shrunk back from christianity itself um although if you look at the trends you find that millennials are actually more likely to speak god with more frequency than boomers, which is interesting. So the trend, in some ways, there is a renewed interest. Now, it's not huge, and there still is a massive decline. It's just less of a decline among millennials. But uh, I do think there's sort of a renewed interest in spirituality, uh, so long as it's tolerant and life-giving and all the things that millennials value. There is a renewed interest in spirituality, um, but but how does one go about commissioning a study? You know, it's a it's it's a bit of a long story and not too much of an interesting story. So I'll I'll just make long story uh, medium and say uh, I shared an office for a while. Barna had a little outpost here in New York for for a good long while, and I shared an outpost here. And I worked with the two employees that were in this office, including. Well, the editor-in-chief of Barna, Roxanne Stone, who's a very good friend of mine, who was an editor for me uh, at Relevant Magazine years and years ago. And uh, so I was there in the office with them, and I kept talking through this idea. I'd go across the hall. We were in kind of a shared workspace, but we had our own office. And I'd go across the hall, and I would whiteboard this concept. And I kept changing it and changing it and changing it. And I said, you know what I really am missing? I've got a couple little studies that hint at this, but I'm really missing that key cornerstone piece where I can just straight up ask people what's going on, how often they speak God, and why those who don't speak God often uh, don't speak God more often. And I was looking around, and then I thought, wait a minute, I'm sitting in an office with an outpost, of, a, of a, a social research firm that focuses on this very thing. And so uh, I said, hey, what would it look like if we designed uh, a study to make this work and figure this out and understand this? And uh, it's very, very, very expensive uh, to, do, to commission a study. Like every question is 
thousands upon thousands of dollars, depending on sample size. And uh, as a writer, that was not something I could afford. But I believed in this. And so um, uh, we were able to trade a little bit of work here and there where I was able to do some work and kind of store up some credits, if you will, and, and, and make it work. And then they also had another study that they were looking to do. So, so in fact, if you want not just this data, but wide-ranging data on this, they have a whole monograph on spiritual conversations and, and, and uh, what it means to converse about faith in this moment. A huge uh, booklet that they've done with all kinds of data that, that even relates to evangelism. My book is not on evangelism, but even relates to evangelism, what evangelism looks like in the 21st century. They put all that together. So they, they said, hey, look, we actually have another study we can kind of group this in with. And it just became this moment where I felt like, you know, I don't know, maybe God winked at me or something. And it was like, this is what you need. This is what you've been waiting for. And when I got the results back to that study and I was able to put some infographics together and to really dig into the study, I thought, wow, this is more substantial than I even thought. Yeah. It's interesting just in the last I don't know, generation of theologians, uh, a, a lot have taken a similar approach to the language of faith. I mean, you interacted with Walter Brueggemann, some in the book. There's a scholar um, named Brent Strawn. Did you run into Brent at Candler? He's an Old Testament st- I, scholar. I know. I know of him, never took him, but no of him. Yeah, he, he has this book called The Old Testament is Dying, in which he treats the Old Testament as a dying language. And Hauerwas has done a lot of similar theological work with Christianity as a language. And they kind of all universally note, we're, we're not talking about God as much as a culture. The way we're talking about God isn't very clear. Kind of the language of God is somewhat imperiled. And, and you you go into this in, I think, a really um, interesting and kind of you kind of give us handlebars here for what is going on when a language is dying or in trouble. And that there are these kind of typical three typical approaches people take when that's going on. I wonder if you could just kind of summarize the three approaches to a dying language. Yeah. So every year. um a number of language disappear, languages disappear. Uh, they die out. And I became really obsessed with this question of why languages die. And most of the reasons are unspectacular. Economic reasons, uh, physical death, you know, genocide, you wipe out a people group, there's no one left to speak the language. Um, so there are, there are a lot of kind of boring reasons for it. And then I started to, to say, okay, what does it look like when people realize that their language is dying and they care about it because they've spoken it? How do they respond? And which ways of responding um, are helpful and which ones are not helpful? And so I put together, I just kind of like started, you know, grouping people together in different camps, if you will. And found that there really were three camps, and uh, among those three approaches, one is really bad, one is not so helpful because it's not scalable, and then one works. Uh, It works in terms of, if you look at languages that have come back uh, from near extinction, they always follow this model. So what are those? One is what I call fossilization. Fossilization is where your primary approach is to protect words and to protect their corresponding meanings. So in other words, you get, um, you get a lot of people who say, what fill in the blank word, sovereignty, uh, God, sin, what that word has meant for me is what it should always mean. And it feels sort of destabilizing if you question the meaning that is ascribed to that word. And so instead you protect those words, you, you sort of uh, put them into liquid amber, you fossilize them. And this is bad for all kinds of reasons. One, linguistics uh, will tell you that every language will either change or die. So living languages have to, have to operate the way living 
organisms do. They grow and change over time. They evolve. Every language moves toward either evolution or extinction, and there really are no exceptions to this. Even comeback languages that have come back, they're all different. They've shifted in syntax, meanings have, have been tweaked, etc. Um, so this is a big point uh, that it sort of fails that. It also fails uh, when you talk about sacred language. What basically happens is, is that if you are a doubter, if you are a seeker, if you are a questioner, uh, you're, not, you're not going to feel welcome in a spiritual conversation. And so you'll just leave it. You'll leave communities that often facilitate those spiritual conversations because you don't feel welcome there. Your questions, your challenges are not welcome there. So you just kind of move on. Uh, we know, actually, Barna did another study that showed one of the main reasons that young people give for leaving the churches is they say, my doubts and my questions aren't welcome there. And doubts and questions are very important, particularly to millennials. And so that's a, that's a really bad approach. There's another approach that's super popular among, well, you know, fossilization would be very popular among, like, um, conservative evangelicals. You know, you go to a new Calvinist church and you question what salvation means you're going to realize real quickly your questions are not welcome there. They have a way of understanding that, and it's not up for grabs. So that's kind of one stream. Uh, the, the second stream that's not as uh, – it doesn't work is called substitution. And liberals, liberal Christians will tend to gravitate toward this one, which says, if I don't like a word, I'll just get rid of it. Maybe I'll find a word to replace it. Um, so whereas fossilization protects words, substitution pitches words. It just says, okay, yes, I don't like what the word sin means. I'll just stop using sin. And if I want to talk about the concept that I think sin pointed to, uh, I'll use a different word. I'll talk about messiness. I'll talk about brokenness. But all those words are fraught as well, right? They all have sort of implications that may or may not work. And so that's a, that's a really tough uh, approach for a number of reasons. One, you don't get rid of the concept. Words are just empty boxes that point to, you, put, you place meaning into them. They're carrier pigeons of meaning. That's all they are. It's nobody, nobody has an issue with sin because they don't like the, the letter S sitting next to the letter I sitting next to the letter N. It's the meaning that you put into that that gives people problems. And just not using the carrier, not using the box, doesn't get rid of the fact that that meaning is still out there and you have to do something with it. And oftentimes that meaning is at least partially, though incomplete typically, true. So that doesn't work. It's also not scalable because as you, as you get rid of words, as you pitch words, you, uh, you end up um, you end up not having anything left. The, the vocabulary of faith becomes leaner and leaner because words in a day and age like this are increasingly problematic. Um, and so you just end up with nothing left to rebuild on. And the third reason is, is that Christians are people of the text, of the book. We have, a, we have the Bible, and we return to that uh, a lot. And so even if you say, you know what, I don't like the word sin, so I'm not going to use it. Eventually, you're going to bump up against that word again, and you're going to have to deal with it. So what I'm arguing for in the book is the approach of transformation. So you have fossilization that protects words. You have substitution that pitches words. I argue for language transformation, which is where you play with words. And this is, this is just the way that language works. You, you, you use it new ways. You, you, you hold these meanings with uh, open hands. You hold them loosely and you allow them to transform to meet the needs of your current moment and to avoid the pitfalls of the past. And that can make people a little uncomfortable. I imagine a lot of your folks in Alabama would say, that feels really squishy. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know if I like that. But that is the way that language works. And it is the way that sacred speech has always functioned throughout the history of Christianity. It has always morphed in meanings. Uh, that's the way that the vocabulary of faith has always worked. And so what I'm asking for people to do is to recover an approach that says, doubters, you are welcome. Seekers, you are welcome. Questioners, you are welcome. 
let's sit here with these sacred words and together within community, let's dream about what these words could mean for us today so that we can recover confidence in the vocabulary of faith. Yeah, that's really good. So one of the things that as you're talking about how to do this play, this trans transformation project, um, you stress the importance of courage and imagination to the whole project. I, I want to read just a short quote from your book. You write, modern Christians are children of both Merriam-Webster and King James. We often approach language like chemistry or algebra rather than like poetry or painting. This suffocates, you write, sacred language, making it unrecognizable to the ancients of the Judeo-Christian tradition. We need a dose of courage and imagination to revive the vocabulary of faith. And I'm guessing just I've, you know, read you for a long time, kind of followed your writing, especially um, over the last few years. And I'm I'm guessing courage is a word you choose somewhat based on your own experience of working with words that if you write, especially in in kind of the journalistic stream of things and in the faith stream of things, if you write in, in, in the intersection of those, you're going to get attacked. And so I, I just wonder what it's like for you as a writer. Um, how do you how do you handle the criticism, the attacks, especially when they can be so personal and come wow. from people you, you you think are friends? And so I, I wonder if you could talk about the courage end, end of that and how important it is. Yeah. So up to this point, we've largely discussed the first half of the book, but, you know, the second half of the book is all these essays on different words where I'm reimagining words like sin and disappointment and pain and God and lost and grace and all of these words in the vocabulary of faith. I, I, I reimagine those to kind of model what this would look like. And these are kind of heartfelt chapters. Um, but a lot of those have actually are things that I worked out over the years in columns. And they were things that were controversial. If I've been told, if I've read Jonathan has jumped the shark once, I've read it a thousand times. People say, okay, now you're done. You know, it's sort of have tried to farewell me in so many ways or label me with some name uh, when I'm just raising questions. And what I've realized is, is in this world where criticism is so prevalent and where it's so easy, because today you can hide behind anonymity, for example, where criticism is so easy and, and it is so, um, it is so uh, prevalent, and it's encouraged, by the way. Like if you really criticize someone really badly, and I mean badly in, in the sense that I mean harshly, you'll get a lot of likes. People will kind of give you a fist pump. So it's encouraged. There's all these positive feedback mechanisms encouraging criticism. And when you know that, to raise any question of meaning will bring with it a tsunami of criticism, you are less likely to do it. Uh, so what I'm trying to do there is to give people the set appropriate expectations going forward, that when you question what equality looks like in the 21st century or what justice looks like in the 21st century or what marriage means or what love uh, means you are going to get a lot of blowback and so you need to be prepared for that it's you're going to have to do the hard work of building courage into your life before you even jump feet first into this project now for me it's been kind of a, a grace the way that to come full circle in our conversation, the way that my um, life is, <coughs> excuse me, the way that my life has sort of developed in that I grew up in a, in, a, in a place where I said I had a high level of exposure, so I knew how to handle criticism. And then my, my career developed kind of slowly over time where I was learning to handle criticism little by little but it's still hard and it still hurts. And I realize that the courage I need to build in my life, I don't build it into my life when I'm getting criticism, but before I ever receive it. So I'm nurturing courage 
every single day through spiritual practices. Nice. You you mentioned sort of the how online has changed the way criticism happens. I, I read this book a few years back called Dataclism. Have you ever heard of that? Christian Rudder's book on big data. No. It's an interesting book. He but he he makes a statement in the book. He says that there um there will be more words written on Twitter in the next two years than contained in all the books ever printed up to that point in the English language. And part of what he he's saying is this this is having a massive impact on the language itself and the way we play with language. And I hear a lot of people talk about what Twitter and Facebook and social media are doing to the way we communicate, the way we talk to one another or relate to one another, or talk about one another. I wonder if you have thought about uh, how those mediums are impacting the the language itself from a linguistic standpoint. What What impact do you see social media having upon the the words, the vocabulary themselves. Yeah, maybe 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 walk that out. Give me an example of what that would look like. What, well what I just question would look like. There's there's play um there's play in language like shorthands. Uh-huh. Like I don't know if you've read um oh I can't I'm not coming up with his name right now. He's a freelance and good columnist and writer in New York City. I can't come up with his name, but he's talking about his son and he connecting through text that this was like a life a, a lifeline for him with a kid who wouldn't talk to him face to face, but would talk through text. But they kept getting tripped up on vocabulary and syntax like he he kept sending lols and he thought it meant lots of love uh-huh. and when it meant laughing out loud was which made these completely inappropriate lols and all this stuff i i just wonder if you're uh-huh. you're thinking about the words the vocabulary we use in and it seems like twitter and uh, especially twitter because of the limit of characters it's changing the syntax I wonder if you mm-hmm. just, in your study, if you considered that at all. What, what's yeah, it, what well, is what is it doing to the words themselves? Yeah, so this this phenomenon is not new. Uh, the way that words change meaning has always happened. But what happens is is that in the digital age, because the the amount of information being put out is so intense, it's increased so much. You know, there were times like if you rode in your commute on the way to work, you weren't creating content, but now you are. You're tweeting. You're listening to content. You're tweeting content. You're, you know, so there's there's a huge amount of information, and the more the more there is an uh, the more content we produce, the faster that language shift happens, because as words words are are as words are used, they transform. That's just the way that language works. So that's hard. Where the tension comes in is when you you work with sort of a linguistic assumption. So the example that you gave of the of the father with his son, LOL, I just assume what you mean, and then I move on from that. The same thing happens with sacred speech, right? Uh, I use a word, and you're triggered by it. So you just shrink back because you've assumed what it means. Nobody is stopping to ask the question, what am I saying when I'm saying what I'm saying? Or what are you saying when you're saying what you're saying? Nobody's doing the job of actually stopping, naming the tensions, asking the questions, wrestling with the words. Nobody's doing that. And so the problem comes when we're all assuming that the the words that we're using come from a common vocabulary, a common script, when in fact they do not. And so what I'm actually encouraging in this book is, is to stop assuming, to get together in communities of seekers and speakers, and to begin listing out those words, those LOLs in the vocabulary of faith that we feel some tension around or we've had misconceptions about or things that have been lost in translation. 
and to wrestle with them intentionally to say, what do I mean when I say this? What do you mean when you say this? How have you been hurt by the way that I've used this word? How have I been hurt by the way you've used this word? How have we used this word in a way that has, has uh, uh, misrepresented God? And then how would we dream about a way to use this word intentionally with a different meaning and a different context uh, to build a, a different connotation around it so that we would avoid those pitfalls and that we would help us restore confidence in this vocabulary. Mm. That's essentially what I'm arguing for. And that's a mm. difficult thing to do in the digital age where so much information functions as monologue. But I believe that it happens in community. It can happen online. Because if I use a word that I know from my research is triggering, I'll stop and define it. I'll say what I mean by that is. So when I use a lot of these words, I'm using them with different meanings attached to them than some other people. And if we were, if we lived in a, a, a hunter-gatherer society, we would have a small community. We would all be using that word in the same way because we'd be conversing with people. But now I have a stranger who's disconnected from our community who encounters me using that word and doesn't know what I mean by it. So I have to do the important work of translating it for strangers that I'm coming into contact with every day. That is hard, hard work, but I think it's important work if we want mm. to revive sacred speech. Yeah. And it seems to me, it's it's funny, it's not, um, it's not strictly speaking pragmatic, because I think that's, that's, sort of what you're describing with the, with the more progressive substitution approach. It's just, it's just easier not to use the word. And it's not, totally I, idealistic, sort of like the the conservative fossilization, like, no, we're going to use this and I'm going to tell you what it means. It's very, it, it's not really, either, it's just more reflective, it seems to me, of reality and just the way language works. But it, at the same time, it seems like what you're describing um, is, is a fairly sophisticated approach you know what i mean i mean i mean you say in the book that it, it actually it requires an open mind and christians at least my tribe i mean it's different i'm in kansas city it's a little it's a little more open-minded here but you get you get outside the city and it's different christians aren't really known for being open-minded and I, i'm just i wonder if the approach that you're describing will end up leaving a bunch of people behind um, who don't want to either don't want to think about it at such a deep level or um, they're they're steeped in these interpretive communities that that are already so committed to fossilization of language and sort of a protectionist stance toward theological terms. Um, I mean, does this if the dynamic you're describing is true and it's just reality, this is how language works. Does this um, does this mean those communities are are doomed? Like, how's it going to impact the the communities, the Christians, who are either not sophisticated enough or just don't want to don't want to think about it? Like, don't have the theological depth or, or the desire to even go there are I mean does it signal a problem do you think well yeah well you they're already being left behind so in yeah. other words will I leave them behind no I won't what the data shows is when I looked just at practicing Christians church-going Christians the most faithful the most religious only 13% say that they have spiritual re religious conversations with regularity, which is only once a week. So if you go to the most conservative, faithful church, pietistic church, where everybody's pressured to sit in that pew or that chair every single week, and you look around, only one in eight of you have confidence to speak God with regularity. Mm -hmm. One in eight. So you've already been left behind. Seven out of eight have already been left behind in these communities. We're also finding that people are leaving these communities by and large because their questions aren't welcome. So there was a long time where, where people, uh, I think, falsely correlated that mainline denominations were dying because they had an open-handed approach to these theological concepts and conservative evangelical churches were growing because they had more of a fossilization approach. Now what we've seen is, is that those things are not correlated. That most of the decline in mainline denominations was due to low birth rates, and that 
conservative evangelical denominations haven't been able to outrun those demographic shifts, and now they're declining at roughly the same rate that mainline denominations are declining. So mm-hmm. it's, it, it, but beyond that, I would say what I try to avoid is, is thinking in the paradigm that was given to me that hasn't worked. And that's the kind of church growth model that says the most important thing is that we have more and more people, that tomorrow we have more people than today and that the next day we have more people than tomorrow. I think that's a flawed view because what you end up with is the number that I gave you, which is a bunch of people who are coming to church, perhaps out of obligation, but who aren't carrying the the meaning of that faith into their everyday lives. So just getting more people sitting in a church using a language that they have no interest in is, is not a strategy for success. So is it a harder approach? Yes. When you advocate for a harder approach, will you lose some people? Yes. But there is no other approach. There mm-hmm. is no other way to revive the language of faith. Now, if what you want is a bunch of people coming to church out of obligation who use sacred speech like Latin, where you, it never intersects your everyday life, but you hear it maybe uh, within, a, within a liturgical or church concept, well, then by all means, that's, a, that's mm-hmm. a fantastic approach. But I don't think that's a bright future for Christianity in America. Yeah. And it also, it's, it almost sounds uh, like, like a mistake made, like you said, in, in service of chasing the bigger, better, higher, stronger, faster, or maybe even power. I know I have a son who has dyslexia, and so I'm I'm I always feel very attuned to the ways in which language is connected to power. Um, in fact, I I really liked the the story you told uh, in the book about I think you used the name Jerry, a friend of yours who waits tables on Sunday mornings instead of going to church because he was asked to leave his last church because he wanted to have the conversation about the language of faith, and, and the church was just not up for that renegotiation they ask him to leave i i i don't know it just as a pastor and as somebody who's you know i i'm kind of investing my whole life in this language of ours this language of faith and i do worry that people are more committed to power and to the preservation of their power than to holding on to the the language of faith in any way that um gives us a future right but that's you know what else like you know people being more committed to power than uh to a vibrant spirituality is not a it's not a new problem it's a problem that we that every generation of christians face yeah yeah that's for sure okay so in the second half of the book you you have all these words that you're playing with do you have a favorite and also uh, just as some, I'm always trying to think, how did they put this together? Did you leave a word out that you're that you almost put in that you wish yeah, you would have I, included? I, I actually left out the word courage, and I wrote a chapter for it, but it was just not. It just was not up to snuff, so I cut that yeah. chapter. I also cut the word persecution. That one came out, and so uh, those words came out. Uh, I don't know that I have a a favorite word. Um, I like the word yes, because it kind of tees it off. So the holiness of saying yes, which I think is important for a journey like this to encourage people to embrace that holy affirmation. I think that's just about the best starting point for learning to speak God from scratch. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good chapter too. Okay. So I, I always ask people this, it's a question. Um, by the way, it was Adam Gopnik. That's the guy whose kid and he talk through he's the writer i was referencing before i just remembered his name um uh i always ask people this comes from chuck klosterman's book what if we're wrong and this is kind of just my weird ending question in klosterman's assumption is in his book like almost everything we're committed to right now we're we find out 100 200 300 years later we're completely wrong about it he uses like gravity is an example of something that we like to think we know what it means, but 
we don't understand gravity and scientists are actually just right now starting to get to the heart of it. And and in 50 years, we're going to see gravity like this essential thing as completely different. I wonder, as you step back and look at culture, what do you think we're wrong about? What comes to mind? What are we wrong about today that we're convinced we're right about? Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I have a good answer for that. I think I can give you one uh, answer, which is um, that uh, that I've seen happen in my world, which is that American evangelicalism is dying or is dead. Uh, we've we've been saying that for now about a decade. I've written those pieces. I've had a, leather, a bunch of other people say the religious right is dead. And uh, what I realize is that fundamentalism is very hard to kill. Um, so anytime that you read those pieces, I would be very very wary because as soon as you think that fundamental fundamentalist Christianity is dead, here it is reviving itself. And uh, so that would be something I would probably say in terms of cultural exegesis. That's great. Thanks, Jonathan. This has been really fun. Oh yeah. My pleasure. Thank you for, thanks for having me on and make sure you shoot over the links when everything's up. I will. And when I'm, when I'm writing this, do you want to see it? Do you want to have, no, Approval no, 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 no. I like, okay. I like you. You, you got free reign, so you do, you do as you see fair. Okay. And where, where do you want me to send it when I, when it's up? Did you, did you correspond with Shannon? I did. Yeah, shoot it, shoot it over to Shannon because she logs all of that and then sends them over to me, so that we have like record and we can schedule out our sharing and things for it. So that would be helpful. All right. Cool. Sounds awesome. good. All, All right. right. Thank you very much. Yep. Have a good Peace. day. See you, man. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.